Okay, let's uh, open up our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And then we'll also be reading over in Mark 1, so you might want to find those two places. The title for our study this morning, and this is not our outline, but you have that in your books, lesson number 22. The title for the study is The First Great Galilean Tour. And our outline consists consists of just two parts, so I didn't bother to, again, make a transparency for it. Part one, which is taken from Matthew 4, Mark 1, and Luke 4, we will be considering the Lord's authority to preach. Remember now, we have been talking about his authority demonstrated in various aspects of life. We looked in Lesson 20 at his authority over nature, and then last week we looked at his authority over demons and over disease, over sickness. This morning we're going to be looking at his authority, first of all, to preach as he goes about all of Galilee teaching in the various synagogues. And then secondly, part two, which will be from Matthew 8, verses 2 to 4, Mark 1, verses 40 to 45, and Luke 5, verses 12 to 16, we're going to look at his authority to purify. And that will be very interesting as we discuss the Lord's first miracle of cleansing a leper. So let's begin by looking at his authority to preach. And for this, I'll begin by reading Luke 4, verses 42 to 44, and then we'll skip over to Mark as well. All right, Luke 4, starting at verse 42, it says, And when it was day, he departed and went into a desert place and prayed, is what Mark 1.35 tells us. That's why he went into the desert place, was to pray. And the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him, or detained him, that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. And he preached in the, what? Synagogues of Galilee. He went throughout all of Galilee, and it was his custom to go into the synagogues and preach. So let's look now at Mark 1, verses 35 to 39. It says, And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him, they said unto him, All men seek for thee. And he said unto them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also. For therefore came I forth. And he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and cast out devils. All right, this is uh, also found over in Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25, but says essentially the same thing, so we won't turn there. All right, the previous day, which we looked at last week, the previous day in the Lord's life to the one we're looking at now, had been a very, very busy one for the Lord Jesus. It had been the Sabbath, and he had started the day by preaching, remember, in the Capernaum synagogue. The people had been very, the ones who were there and heard him preach, had been very astonished by both the authority with which he preached and the power of his words, but he very quickly demonstrated his divine right to speak with such authority and power by doing what? By casting a demon out of a demoniac, exactly, who had, who had attended the service that morning. Then following that, he and his men had gone to Peter's house, probably to enjoy the Sabbath dinner and get some rest. However, upon their arrival, they were immediately... Um, alerted to the fact that Peter's mother-in-law 
was in serious trouble because she had, uh, she was sick with a great fever, Luke the physician told us. And then the Lord demonstrated his authority over disease. Just as earlier that morning he had demonstrated his authority over demons, now he demonstrated his authority over disease. And um, he healed Peter's mother, his wife's mother, in such a way that she was able to do what? Right, she was able to instantly get up and minister to not only the Lord, but to his disciples as well. And then, as soon as the sun went down and the Sabbath was over, a large crowd of people gathered at Peter's house. Now word had really gotten out that Jesus had the ability to heal all kinds of things, including demon-possessed friends. So they came out of their houses and brought all their, their sick and demon-possessed friends and relatives to, to Peter's house in order to... Um, to see Jesus and be healed. Word about him really, really spread. And so the scripture states that, you know, great multitude of people came out and he healed every single one of them, didn't he? Nobody left there that day disappointed. So it had been a really long and tiring day for the Lord Jesus because it probably took him well into the night to heal everybody that had come there. And yet we find that the very next morning, Even though he'd had such a busy day the day before, the very next morning, we are told in Mark 135 that he rose up a great while before day, long time before the sunrise. He got up, and he did so in order to what? To find a solitary place to pray. He got up before Peter, Andrew, James, or John, or any of the other members of the household, and he went to a secluded place, we are told, in order to spend time alone with his father in prayer. Prayer is what? What is prayer? Exactly. It's communication um, with God, God the Father, our Creator. And it was a basic and a very essential element in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, even though he was God, is God, still that did not make him independent of, of prayer with his Father as a man. So we find, right, it's a real example to us, as Catherine said, we find him throughout his uh, entire earthly journey, constantly in prayer with his father. He, you know, remember he was bab- when he was baptized, he prayed. That was the first recorded time of prayer. And now this is the second recorded time of prayer. Now we know that the Lord continually prayed. I'm sure he got up every morning and prayed with his father and then communicated with him all day long. But as far as the record is concerned, this is the second recorded time of prayer for the Lord. We find him praying before he would begin his great Galilean ministry. And we find him again praying, you know, before his glory is unveiled on the Mount of Transfiguration. We'll find him praying before he chooses his 12 apostles. When everyone spoke well of him and wanted to crown him king, after he fed the 5,000, we find he finds he goes to a mountain apart to pray. We find him when he's tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to let the cup of wrath pass from him. Of course, we find him praying so fervently that what, what actually happened? Right, sweat, uh, drops of blood were um, coming from his body. Anyway, so, and of course, he, he, uh, there are many other unrecorded <clears throat> occasions of prayer as well. But he never spoke or acted without first having spent time with his father in prayer because he never wanted to do anything that was out of his father's will. Now, if Christ, who is holy and perfect, needed to pray, what does that say about you and I? 
we should pray without ceasing. And uh, we should constantly, you know, even if we don't verbalize what we're saying to the Lord, don't you find that you do that as you kind of drive along in the car or just during the day? You're kind of constantly always talking to the Lord. It might not be, as I said, verbal, but you're thinking, you know, God, help me with this. Or, you know, if somebody is brought to your mind, you, you just lift up a real quick, I call them arrow prayers to the Lord. And as I drive along, I'm always thinking of God because I look out at his the beauty of his creation, and I just thank you, Lord. Thank you for health. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. So we should constantly be in prayer. And our Lord, of course, was the example. We, too, need to have our solitary place where we uh, commune with our Heavenly Father. Now, the words of his prayer aren't recorded for us. We just know he went to pray. But we can imagine or we can assume that it was a prayer to prepare him for this great Galilean ministry which he was about to begin, his preaching tour. He probably would have been asking for his father's guidance and for his father's blessing um, and power and strength, etc., and also, of course, for fruit for his labor. He would be asking for souls who would believe on him with saving faith. Now, when Simon Peter and the other disciples awoke and they discovered that the Lord wasn't there, you know, that he was absent, they went out to find him. Now, they didn't, they were probably used to him doing this, so in this situation, they did not go out to find him in order to disturb his time of prayer. They wanted to tell him that people were already beginning, even that early in the morning, were beginning to gather at Peter's house to seek him. Why do you think they wanted to see him again? More healings. I mean, word spread all throughout that day, and, and people who were coming from a little bit further also wanted, they were bringing their sick, and so apparently another whole crowd of people had gathered at Peter's house to see Jesus and receive his touch of healing. Uh, now, Luke tells us that this group actually went looking for him. Perhaps somebody saw the disciples leave the house, and, and they started to follow the disciples to see. They figured the disciples would know where Jesus went, and so they followed. And when they found him... Um, they attempted to keep him from leaving their city. It says in Luke 4:42, and the people sought him and came unto him and stayed him. In other words, tried to detain him that he should not depart from them. But Jesus knew that it was, remember, he had just been praying, so he knew that it was his father's will that he go into other cities and towns and villages of Galilee preaching his gospel message of the, of the kingdom of God, you know, to other, other people who hadn't heard it yet. And so, in response to their plea for him to stay, he said to them, I must. Remember how important it is when the Lord Jesus says the word must? Here's another one. He said, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore am I sent. That's why I was sent here, to preach that the kingdom of God is available, because I'm the king. Now, remember, the Samaritans of Sychar had also besought the Lord Jesus to remain with them, to tarry with them. And he did so for how many days? He stayed with them for two days, John 4:40. Now, their request, however, was based on their desire to hear more of his words and also to get to know him better. Remember, the Lord Jesus had never healed anybody in Sychar. When he met that woman at the well, you know, no casting out of demons, no healing of any kinds of sicknesses, no uh, creative miracles of any kind. They, real, they just wanted him to stay with them because they wanted to get to know him better. 
and they wanted to hear more of what he had to say. And so he did stay with them another two days. On the other hand, the people of Capernaum wanted to detain the Lord because of his what? His works, his miracles. They were impressed with his power over diseases and over demons, and apparently they were not so much interested in his, his works, I mean his words and his, his person. The majority of the people did not believe on him as Lord and trust in him as their savior, their Messiah, as remember the Samaritans had. The whole, it sounded like the whole town of Sychar was saved, and they were the first to declare him as the savior of the entire world, remember? But the Capernaumites were selfishly interested in Jesus as primarily a miracle worker. Now, there were exceptions. There were some people, of course, who believed on him, but the majority of people just were interested in his miracles. They would have urged him to stay with them indefinitely because if he stayed there forever in Capernaum with them, what would that mean? They'd never have any sick. You know, as soon as one of their children would get sick, off to the great physician, over to, to Jesus, and boom, they would instantly be healed. Nobody would ever be demon-possessed again. Everything would be fine and dandy for them. So they would love for him to just, you know, they don't want to share him. They wanted him to stay there. But rather than resting comfortably in the popularity which he experienced there in Capernaum, which was not the right kind of popularity, but rather than doing that, Jesus did know that it was his father's will to extend his ministry into other areas, and that is why he used that word must. I must preach the gospel of God to other cities and towns. And remember, he had just spent time in prayer with his father, so he was able to resist the temptation to stay within his comfort zone there in Capernaum, you know, where he was really popular and everybody loved him because of his authority over demons and disease. He could have just stayed there, but he had gone to the father in prayer, and therefore he was able to resist that temptation. Now, it was at this point in his public ministry then that he left Capernaum. Now, he will come back to Capernaum, you know, on and off, because that's his headquarters for his whole Galilean ministry. But he is now beginning what is called his great Galilean preaching ministry. And um, Matthew gives us, let's go over to Matthew for a second, because I would like to read Matthew 4, or is it 8? Wait a minute, hold on a minute. Matthew, yeah, Matthew 4, verses 23 to 25, because Matthew actually gives us the most complete account of what the Lord did during this time of his great Galilean preaching tour. All right, Matthew 4, look at verse 23. It says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which were possessed with devils and those which were lunatic, in other words, insane, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. Now you know why this is called the year of his open popularity. Great multitudes of people are following him everywhere. Now, the Galilean province of Israel 
the northern province of Israel, measures about 60 by 30 miles. So we're not talking of a real huge area here. So anybody in this area could travel, you know, if they heard that he was over in Cana, for example, it wouldn't take anybody more than a day or a day and a half, two days at the most, to, to reach him wherever he went. It's not a very big area. And remember that this area is frequent, frequently referred to as Galilee of the, what? Galilee of the Gentiles, right, because many Gentiles lived up in Galilee. It was probably by way of the many Gentiles who lived in Galilee that uh, word about the Lord Jesus went throughout all of Syria, as we saw here in Matthew 4.24. It says word about him went through Syria, throughout all of Syria. Now, Syria is a completely different country from Israel. It's to the north of Israel. But word went throughout that entire country about Jesus. And that was probably by way of Gentiles. You know, the Jewish people of Galilee didn't go up into Syria to tell the people about Jesus. And also, it would be by way of many of the Gentiles of Galilee, that great multitudes of people followed him from Decapolis. I should really have a different map because I would show you where these places are. Syria is up here to the north. Decapolis would be over here to the, um, the, the northeast. Is that right? I'm not good at direct. Yeah, northeast would be Decapolis. And also it says that word about him um, grew among the people beyond the Jordan, which would be to the southeast, would be the area of Perea. Now, Syria, Decapolis, and Perea were primarily populated by what kind of people? Gentiles, not Jewish people. Primarily populated by Gentiles. However, even though many Gentiles were coming to hear and to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, and probably many of them actually trusting in him, putting their faith in him. Yet, his Galilean ministry was concentrated in the Jewish synagogues. So remember that. We get this idea that he's always out in the open preaching. But at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, every time he'd go into a town or a village or wherever he went, he would find the local synagogue, and that's where he would go. And he would assume that role of the Moftir, and he would... He would read the scripture, and he would teach the people. And, of course, it was to the Jews first, because the Jews were the ones in the synagogues. The, the Gentiles were probably outside the... Uh, they wouldn't have been allowed in the synagogue. And so they were outside having to hear what he had to say. Maybe they left the doors open. All right, now, as he went throughout all Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, he authenticated his message with his miracles as he... Uh, as he was prone to do. Always his, his miracles were to authenticate his message. The message was the primary thing. Now, what was, before we get into his miracles, what was the gospel of the kingdom of God? Now, what does the word gospel mean? Okay, so we know it was the good news, and it was good news regarding the kingdom of God. It was the same message that John the Baptist had preached, you know, that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, was what? at hand. Why was it at hand? Because the king was there. The king was there. Now, in other words, what he was preaching was that the divine rule of God on earth was available to them. You know, if the people, if the Jewish people of Israel were willing to receive it by accepting Jesus Christ as their Messiah, you know, their long-promised uh, Messiah and Lord, the promised seed of the woman. If they would accept him, then they could have 
the divine rule of God right there literally on earth. Now we know, of course, that they did not accept him. They rejected and crucified him, their Messiah, king. And therefore, his kingdom, his literal kingdom on earth has had to be postponed. They didn't have it. We didn't, we've never had the kingdom of God on earth where, where Jesus Christ reigns from Jerusalem as king of kings and lord of lords, have we? No, no matter what some people might say, Jesus Christ has never ruled over this world. It's still ruled by the God of this world, Satan. Um, but one day, at the time of the Lord's second coming, he will set up his literal kingdom on earth, and it will last for how many years? One thousand years. All right, but anyway, he was preaching that they could have had the, the, um, the kingdom of God at that point in time, and authenticating his message, he performed many miracles. Uh, Matthew tells us that he healed all manner of sicknesses and diseases. People from all those surrounding areas, I don't know if you can even see that little tiny picture, but people from all the surrounding areas of Galilee came to him. Now, this would be many Gentiles as well with their sick and their demonically possessed uh, and insane lunatic friends and, and relatives, and he healed them. He healed all of them. His miracles actually were a foreshadowing. They were a foretaste of what the kingdom of God <clears throat> will be like when it is established on earth. <laughs> he was showing them what they could have. If they accepted him as king and Messiah, they could have had what they wanted. They didn't want anybody to be sick. They didn't want any, their loved ones to be demonically possessed <clears throat> or have the palsy or be insane, all these different problems that we all face in life. And he was showing them, you don't have to have this. You could have the kingdom of God right now. You know, in the literal kingdom, the millennial kingdom, there will be <clears throat> no mental stresses to make people insane. There will be no demonic forces uh, to possess and torment people. Won't that be wonderful? Because remember, the devil and all of his demons will be bound for the entire 1,000 years. So no one will be possessed or oppressed by demons. And there will be no diseases of any kind. <clears throat> If you doubt me, you can go into all kinds of Old Testament passages and just read about them. For one is Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, if you want to jot that down. Just read about what the kingdom of God will be like here on earth. No, no even death. No one will even die unless they overtly rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you know, people will still, during the millennial kingdom, still need to be saved. They will still need to trust, submit, to the Lord Jesus Christ. They will know who he is. No one will have any doubt about who he is. Just like the demons know who he is, everybody will know that he is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the son of God, etc. But not everybody will submit to him. Isn't that amazing? Even though nobody will be sick, no, no problems, every, nobody, everybody will still need to be saved. Um, and everybody will, for the most part, Obey him, but those who don't and overtly rebel against him, they will be put to death. So that will be the only cause of death during the millennial kingdom. Now, you and I will be there in our, in our glorified new bodies, all right? So we won't even have to worry about death, period. All right, so anyway, this was really a, a time of widening influence and popularity for the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly, you notice, among the Gentiles, which is interesting. 
All right, it's also interesting to discover that although Christ must have literally healed and cast, healed many, many people and cast out demons from, from hundreds of people, perhaps, yet in the three synoptic gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, which are the three co- accounts that tell us about his Galilean ministry, John doesn't really mention it, but in the three synoptic gospel accounts, not one miracle is recorded in specific detail. Now, we know he... He did many, right? But not one is recorded for us in specific detail except a healing, the healing of one, I shouldn't say healing, I should say the cleansing of one leper. And therefore, we need to, we should probably conclude that that one miracle is significant. And it is. So let's look now at his authority to purify. You will notice when you read through the Gospels that, or even in the Old Testament, then whenever it speaks about a leper and a miraculous intervention. It always talks about cleansing, purifying. Others are healed, but lepers are cleansed. Every time you see it, it's that way, which is interesting. And it's because leprosy is a picture of what we need. It's a picture of sin. And what do we need? We need cleansing. cleansing. And how are we cleansed and made whole? By the precious shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's look at his authority to purify. And are you in Luke? Let's look at Luke 5. Luke 5. Let's see, have I got the right? Yep, I do. Okay, let's look at verses 12 to 16. It says, And it came to pass when he, Jesus, was in a certain city... Behold, a man full of leprosy, who, seeing Jesus, fell on his face and besought him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me whole, a clean. And he put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will be thou clean. And immediately the leprosy departed from him. And he charged him, in other words, Jesus charged the leper, former leper, to tell no man But go and show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing, according as Moses commanded, for a testimony unto them. But so much the more went there a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. All right, now I also need you to read uh, with me Mark 1. Go back to Mark. And let's look at verses 40 to 45, because Luke didn't tell us one little thing about that leper. He didn't tell us that he disobeyed Jesus. Mark does. So let's look at Mark 1, verse 40. It says, And there came a leper to him, beseeching him, and kneeling down to him, and saying unto him, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And Jesus, moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy departed from him and he was cleansed. And he straightly charged him and forthwith sent him away and saith unto him, See thou say nothing to any man, but go thy way, show thyself to the priest and offer for thy cleansing those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. But he went out and began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, 
but was without in desert places. And they came, people still came to him from every quarter. All right. Because the Bible states only that the miracle of this healed leper occurred in a certain city, that's what we read, and you can go back to Luke because that's primarily where I will be. We're only told that it occurred in a certain city. We don't know which city it occurred in. We're just left to guess what city it might have been. Now, Matthew and Mark, I did not read Matthew's account, but this same account is found in Matthew 8, verses 2 to 4. Matthew and Mark both tell us that the man Jesus healed was simply a leper, and they give us no additional information about his actual condition. We know he was a leper, but only Luke, the physician who would be interested and knowledgeable about this sort of thing, declares that the man was full of leprosy. That's found in Luke 5.12. This means that the man was in the latter stages of leprosy. He was literally full of leprosy. He was totally consumed with the dreadful disease. Now, notice the sequence of the leprous man's actions. You don't uh, really see this. I'll put his picture back up here in a minute. But, <clears throat> oops, here it is. I want this one up here. <clears throat> we only see this uh, this um, sequence if we if we put all of the gospel accounts together, which is what we're doing in our Life of Christ study. But when we do put them together, it's very interesting because we we find that first of all, the man saw the Lord Jesus. That's in Luke five twelve. And then he came to him. Then he knelt down before him. Now that's over in Mark 1.40. Then he fell on his face before him. That's back in Luke. And then he worshipped him. You don't see that, but that's in Matthew 8.2, the one I didn't read. So this is a, a beautiful picture here of a sinner's submission to Christ. Leprosy, as I've already said, in the Bible symbolizes man's hopeless situation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, in order to be cleansed of our spiritual leprosy, you know, our sinful condition, we must fix our eyes, first of all, upon who? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Fix our eyes upon Jesus. Then we must come to him, kneel before him, which, uh, you know, shows our Submission, our humility, our humiliation before, not humiliate, our humbleness, humility, thank you, our humility before him, fall before him in total submission at his feet, you know, acknowledging that he is Lord, and then do what? Worship him. And, and as the leper who cried out, you know, Lord, he called him Lord, no man can call him Lord unless he's saved, so he said, I mean, he acknowledged that he was Lord, he said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean clean. So in effect here, we have what every person should do in coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and wanting to be cleansed of our spiritual leprosy. We must see him, come to him, kneel before him, fall before him, worship him, and cry out, Lord, make me clean, make me whole. Now, leprosy is absolutely a horrendous disease. Um, The word leprosy in the Greek means literally scaly, and it included a wide variety of serious skin diseases ranging from ringworm, you know, and initially if they saw something like ringworm or some kind of skin disorder, they might think it was leprosy. Um, and so they'd have to put somebody in isolation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But uh, 
it, they would call it leprosy initially, anything ranging from, like, let's say, ringworm or, or psoriasis to the real thing, to real leprosy. It was, uh, the real thing was truly, absolutely dreadful. And it was contagious. It was disfiguring. And this is nothing. This man, this man is not full of leprosy as the man we're going to be looking at. Because if he was, you can see I wrote some things on there. He would have no eyebrows, no eyelashes, no, his hair would be snow white. Probably all his fingers would be just nubs by this point in time. He'd be bent over. Well, we'll talk about that. Anyway, very, very disfiguring disease. And, of course, eventually, eventually terminal. And today it is known as Hansen's disease. And they do have an antibiotic to keep it in check today. It is nothing like it used to be. Now, L.S. Husenda, in a book entitled Unclean, Unclean, and you'll find out in a minute why he called it that, his book on leprosy, he describes leprosy in the following manner. This is in your notes, but here's what he says. He says, the disease which we today call leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. So initially, a leper feels pain, but shortly thereafter, they don't feel pain. And that's a big part of the problem because they don't feel pain and they do things that hurt them, like their fingers, you know, and uh, they don't feel any pain. And so eventually, you know, their fingers just wear away. You know, pain is really a good thing. It's a warning to us. You know, if we get burned, we pull away. But if they're being burned, they don't even know it. They just, so initially it starts with pain, but then numbness takes over. He says, soon the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. The skin, especially around the eyes and the ears, begins to bunch up with deep furrows between the swelling so that the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble that of a lion. Or you know those dogs that are full of wrinkles when they're little puppies and they're all like that, you know, just horrible big furrows around their eyes and uh, it says fingers drop off or are absorbed toes are affected in the same way eyebrows and eyelashes drop off by this time one can see that the person in this pitiable condition is a leper by a touch of the finger alone one can also feel it so if you were to touch a leper which people did not do but their their skin would feel spongy you know, your finger would just kind of sink through it. You could even feel it. One can even smell it, for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, you know, the, the voice box, the leper's voice acquires a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you cannot only now see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a peculiar taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor. End of quote. Um, I want you to all, if you don't have a pen, get a pen in your hand and write down the title of this book. I just read it a couple weeks ago, and it is excellent. It's a novel. So, and it's one that you won't be able to stop turning the pages and you'll be up half the night <laughs> to, find it, to have to find out the end of the story, but it is such a good book. 
Actually, there's two of these, and I hope they have them at the carpenter shop. I recommended this yesterday to all the women, so I think the carpenter shop's going to be swamped. <laughs> but the, the title of the book that I just read is all about leprosy. The authors, it's a husband and wife, you've probably heard of them before, Brock and Bodie Tenay, T-H-O-E-N-E. It looks like Thony, but it's T-H-O-E-N-E. They are Christian, born-again Christians. They really do their research before they ever write a book. And they, in this, in this book called Second Touch, Second Touch, uh-huh. Second Touch is the name of the book. They really give us a, a perfect picture of what it was like to be a leper in the days of Jesus Christ. And um, it, it just it's a moving book. I was in tears many times about um, what a leper went through back in those days. But it ends happily because they meet the great physician. So. But there's another book, Brock, and, well, there's many books that they wrote together as a team. But the, the first book in this particular series is about the man who was born blind and was healed, given his sight by Jesus, and it is called First Light. And I can recommend these books with with no hesitation because they are so scriptural. Now, the characters are made up, but everything, I mean, it really gives you insight into the situation in um, first century Palestine at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll thank me after you read them, I promise you. All right, after that description by Mr. Huzenda, we can really understand why leprosy was the most feared disease of the ancient world. Eventually, the leprosy bacillus affected the internal organs. You know, not just the outside, but it would work its way inside. It it worked from the outside skin, that's where it started, on the skin, and then it would work its way in to the bones and into, you know, to the internal organs. And when the bones began to deteriorate, the person would become so weak that he was or she was highly susceptible to other such diseases as tuberculosis or pneumonia. Now, many lepers actually would die not of the leprosy, but of the disease, you know, because their immune system was down and they were so weak, they would die of something else, such as tuberculosis or pneumonia. But there was, in the old world, there was absolutely no cure for leprosy, and so the victim always died. Even today, people with Hansen's disease are um, not totally curable, but with the antibiotics that they can give to them nowadays, they um, can hold the disease in check. Now, in order to protect his chosen people, God, from leprosy, God had given um, very strict and specific laws to the Jews regarding leprosy. And some of the longest chapters and kind of dull reading in the Bible are found in Leviticus 13 and 14 because they go through all the little steps and stages that had, had to happen when somebody had a skin disease. A person who was suspected of perhaps having leprosy um, was, he was, of course, first of all, he had to be examined by the priest of his local town or village. Um, and then if he showed some of the beginning signs of leprosy, he was to be isolated totally separated, isolated for 7 to 14 days. And if after that time, the skin rash or whatever it was they were looking at, if it had not spread, 
After two weeks of isolation, the person was declared clean. Okay, you know, it was something else. Maybe it was a skin virus, maybe it was psoriasis, maybe it was um, rosacea. <laughs> you know, I don't know, but it was something else. So they were declared clean by the priest. <clears throat> but because leprosy was so highly contagious, that person, you know, no matter what it was, they were initially um, isolated, taken away and put in a, in a private place away from everybody else. Now, on the other hand, if the skin rash worsened after two weeks in isolation, the person was declared unclean, and then he was legally ostracized from society. He was forbidden, he was removed, and that's where this book, oh, it's just heartbreaking. You know, if children, um, the main character in the book is, is a girl, and she is, her family, her mother and her father have to, to just send her out of the home. And she's on her own, totally. They had to be totally separated from their family, their loved ones, the synagogue, every, you know, all of society. They were just, rem they were put out as an outcast. Forbid they were forbidden to live within the, the walls of any, any city. And you can read about that um, in Numbers 5-2. And if a leper did step within uh, the limits of a city... He was immediately to be given 40 whips of a la the lash. Now, usually they would stop at 39. You know, they just bring somebody right to the point of dying, but they'd stop at 39 because they always said 40 would kill somebody. Well, if you're a leper and you're already sick and hurting, 40 lashes would probably kill them. Now, most lepers lived in leper colonies. And again, in this book, you get a really good, accurate idea of what a leper colony was like. Most of them lived in leper colonies. The Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, actually, uh, forbade a person, a Jew, from coming within six feet of a leper. Now, so if you saw a leper coming, you had to stay at least six feet from that person. Or if the wind was blowing, you could only come, uh, you'd have to remain 150 feet from that leper. When a person was found to have leprosy, his clothes had to be torn as a signal to other people so that they would recognize him or her as a leper. So in other words, they could never go around in complete clothing, you know, everything all sewn together nice. They had to tear their clothing so that if somebody saw them, they would say that's got to be a leper. Because in the initial stages, sometimes they wouldn't be able to see the spot maybe on them. So they had to go around with their clothes torn. Also, the, and you'll see one of my pictures in here is inaccurate because the leper's head was to be left uncovered. They always had to leave their head uncovered. So, um, and, and again, the reason for this is because the hair would eventually turn snow white. All the hair on the body, body hair. Of course, they would lose their eyebrows and their eyelashes, but their hair and the other hair would turn snow white. And that white head of hair, along with the torn clothing, would also for, give a warning to other people that here comes a leper and keep your distance. And then his mouth had to be covered with his hand in order to prevent the spread of his disease. So if a, and a, if a leper saw anybody approaching, let's say he's walking along a road somewhere, the side of a road, and he sees somebody else coming toward him, he had to immediately put his hand over his mouth and shout what? Unclean, unclean. And his you know, especially if he was later on, he'd have this raspy, grating voice. <clears throat> so again, he would be a warning to others. Now, 
recent medical studies of Hansen's disease confirm that leprosy can be passed from one individual to another just by inhaling the same air with that person. However, this fact was not discovered until, you know, scientifically it wasn't discovered until modern times. So the discovery, what did it confirm once again? The accuracy, the absolute accuracy of God's word, even as far back as the days of Moses. Now, Moses didn't know about, you know, germs and, and things like that and contagious diseases, but God did. The Holy Spirit of God inspired Moses, Moses to record the law, which said that a leper was to cover his mouth um, he was only to come within six feet of another individual or 150 feet if the wind was blowing because the wind would carry the germs even farther, right? Now, scientists didn't even know about germs until around the 15th century um, B.C. I think that's a mistake. I think it's 15th century A.D. They didn't even know about germs. But God, the author of Scripture and the creator of all things, did, of course, he knows about germs, and this is why he also had told Moses to um, say, to record, that the leper's clothing was to be burned. They would actually go into the leper's home and fumigate everything, take all their possessions. They were left with hardly anything because they had to burn it. You know, they would only leave with the clothing on their back, and that had to be torn. When they went into the leper, co well, anyway, the leper colonies even had a guard at the door so they couldn't come and go, but people would bring food and they would leave it there at the guardhouse. But again, this just shows you that the word of God is scientifically accurate. You don't have to worry about it being unscientific. It's science which usually catches, which, you know, sooner or later catches up with the Bible. An ancient rabbi wrote this about lepers. He said, when I see a leper, I throw stones at him, lest he come near me. Another rabbi said, I would not so much as eat an egg that was purchased on a street where a leper had walked. You know, no one, no one touched lepers, not even mothers, wives, husbands, or children. So it's no wonder then that all three of the synoptic gospel writers tell us that Jesus actually touched the leper who had been in this advanced stage of leprosy. You know, the disease, in other words, what this meant, this leper the leprosy had already eaten into his internal organs and his bones. And, and the leper was probably bent over, too, because at this point in time, his bones would have deteriorated. And as the bones deteriorated, the, the person uh, you know, shriveled up and, and got bent over. So the man who came to, to Jesus probably would not have lived much longer if he had not been cleansed. He was absolutely full of leprosy, which means he was eaten alive with leprosy, and no one would ever consider touching such a person except the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason that the Jewish rabbis had such little compassion for lepers was because they saw leprosy as a plague from God of 11 uh, different sins. So whenever they saw a woman or a man or a child, because even children contracted leprosy, when they saw such a one, they had taught the Jewish people to point their fingers at them and then say this, he's a leper and God is punishing him for having committed one of the 11, of the 11 sins. And then they would play games trying to guess which sin that person had committed. Now there were cases in scripture where God did punish someone with leprosy because of disobedience, such as, who can think of someone? 
Miriam, Miriam, the sister of Moses, also uh, um, Uzziah, King Uzziah, was punished with leprosy. And who else? Uh, Naaman, um, we're not really sure. Yeah, Naaman was healed, but um, Gehazi was absolutely, he was um, Elisha's servant. He was punished with leprosy. But this certainly wasn't always the case with people who had leprosy. They weren't, you know, you can't say that because they had leprosy, they were being punished by God. But the Jews were taught that by their rabbis. Now, leprosy does, as I said, symbolize um, a type. It's a type of sin. It's a picture of sin. And uh, there are two main reasons for this, because one is that it was always fatal and uh, without a miraculous intervention, it was always fatal, just as sin is incurable. It's always fatal. We're, we're doomed because of our sin, except also for a miraculous intervention of God's saving grace. Secondly, leprosy led to separation, and sin also leads to separation. Man is separated from a holy God. Well, the Lord dealt with this leper in a manner which was totally different from the Jewish rabbis because he was moved with compassion, we are told. He saw the man. He didn't see the disease. He saw the man, and he was moved with compassion and concern for him. He was also moved by the man's faith because when the man fell before him, he said, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. The man was saying, you see, the leper was saying that he knew Jesus had the power and the authority to cure him, and yet he also knew that Jesus was under no obligation to do so. Although the leper knew that Jesus had this ability and he had this power, he asked to be healed only if it was the Lord's what? Will. Now that is highly commendable. He never claimed to be worthy or deserving of the Lord's divine cleansing. He didn't say he was deserving of cleansing. He merely left himself in the Lord's hands to do with him as he saw fit. So the implication is that the leper was willing to remain uncleansed, unhealed. He was willing to remain a leper and to very soon die a leper if that was what the Lord willed for him. Naturally, of course, he wanted to be healed. And how do we know he wanted to be healed? Because he, he went to Jesus. You know, he wouldn't have gone to Jesus in the first place if he didn't want to be healed. Now, he's a great example in this situation. Next time we see him, he isn't. But here he is because we should have this same type of humble spirit um, as we come to the Lord to request his will for us. We're not to make bold claims on a healing or on a, a blessing or on a favor as if it was our inherent right. You know, heal me because I deserve this. Instead, we need to follow the the leper's example. He claimed no right, but merely acknowledged in worshipful submission the Lord's divine ability to heal him. Can the Lord heal any of us of any of our afflictions if it's his will? Of course he can. But you see, we're just like the leper. We know he has the power to do it if he wants to. But we need to, like the leper, be willing to accept whatever the Lord's will is for us. Because sometimes he does not choose to heal us. If, if he always chose to heal everybody, no one would ever die. And Paul wouldn't have had a thorn in his flesh. All right, anyway, in response to the leper's humble, reverent, confident faith, the Lord Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, Matthew 8, 3. 
Now, he didn't have to do that. Could the Lord have healed him from that safe six feet? Of course he could have. But he purposely touched him. He, um, he made an obvious point to reach out and physically touch a man absolutely full of leprosy. And the rabbis would never have done this. They would never have condescended so low as to touch a leper. They wouldn't even come within six feet of one. E- you know, even if one was lying there on the roadside in great distress dying, a rabbi would not have done anything. To- he would have gotten as far away from him as possible. And we know this because what they do with that man on the road to Jericho who wasn't even a leper. They passed him right by. Now, so that because they would never have risked putting themselves in danger. Yet we can be sure that lepers, and again you get this when you read that book, Second Touch, that they would have longed to, to, to have a touch from another human being. You know, for this man, full of leprosy, it had probably been years and years since he had, had felt the touch of another human being. So even if he had not been cleansed, the Lord's touch alone would have meant a great deal to him. He would have felt the Lord's unconditional love. You know, he would have seen in the Lord's face his compassion toward him and his concern for him as a person. And most people didn't even see lepers as people. When they came along, they would throw stones at them and awful things. You know, get out of here, get out of here. Treat them worse than dogs. But the man would have seen the Lord's compassion. He would have um, understood his unconditional love toward him. And I think that alone would have just healed his heart, if nothing else. If he hadn't even healed him of his leprosy, his heart would have been healed. Okay, got to really move fast here. <clears throat> when the Lord touched the leper and said, Be thou clean, the cleansing occurred how fast? Immediately. Now, I do have to put this picture up here of this happy man. <laughs> Jumping for joy here. But he was not healed in stages. The leprosy didn't disappear, you know, first from his head and then go through a process of cleansing throughout his entire body. Rather, the healing was an immediate, all-at-once cleansing of his entire body, you know, inside and out. How amazing. I mean, you know, he was no longer a repulsive, disfigured, odor-offensive, contagious leper. Suddenly, he was a normal, healthy, sound man who could again return to the the arms of his wife and his children, maybe his mom and dad. You know, he could, he could go back home. He was literally snatched from the clutches of death because he was full of leprosy. He was about to die. And can you just imagine his joy? It's just hard to, it's hard to fathom the joy that must have just gone through it and all the people watching, the disciples. And it was the first recorded healing of a leper in our study and it was one of the most remarkable miracles of the entire ministry of the Lord Jesus because by a mere touch he communicated purity now remember we're talking about his authority to purify and that's what makes this miracle so special and that's why it's the only one recorded specifically for us in his entire Galilean ministry is because he communicated purity according to the Old Testament law this was an impossible thing for a man to do Man could never communicate purity. You know, touching a leper would normally do what to the person touching the leper? It would defile the person touching the leper. It wouldn't purify the leper. It would defile the one touching. 
But in this miracle, the Lord Jesus, who is a pure person, totally pure, purity personified, touched an impure person, the leper, and rather than the natural outcome being that the pure person became defiled and unclean, the impure person became pure or clean. And that was a supernatural outcome. And the logical conclusion, with everybody watching, was that the touch of purity, which changed impurity, had to be none other than the touch of Almighty God himself. Now, another factor which made this miracle significant is the two commands that were given by the Lord Jesus. He um, told the, the leper to tell no man, to tell no one about this miracle. So maybe it was done in private. I don't know. Maybe just in front of the disciples. I'm not really sure. But uh, if he told them to tell no one, I guess no one watched it. I, I'm not really sure about that. But who was the one person he was supposed to tell? The priest. All right. The priest of his local town there. Um, now, there are at least five times in the in five miracles where the Lord Jesus commanded people not to tell anyone. And this is the first of five about their healing. The Lord knew that the report of such a miracle to the general public would limit and hinder his ministry. You see, he was already, as we read, he was already getting very well known and popular because of his power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. But if word got out now that he even had the power to cleanse lepers, Man, I mean, there were hundreds and thousands of lepers back in those days. He would, he would not have time to teach and preach in all the various cities of Galilee. You know, he would just be, every time he'd go into a town, people would just be there shouting at him, you know, heal me, heal me. And he already had a problem with that, bringing the multitudes. The whole colony would have come out. Yes, absolutely. They'd storm the gate and they'd get out and they'd run to Jesus. And you see, this would hinder his ministry because he would be met with so many sick and demonically possessed people and lepers that there would be mass confusion and um, nobody, everybody would be shouting and no one would be silent to hear what he actually had to, to say. The only person to whom he was supposed to go, of course, was to the priest. And he was... Um, to do that in, in accordance to the Old Testament law. The man was to, to, be, declared, to be declared clean by his local priest. And you see, in obeying the Lord Jesus, if he had obeyed him, the leper would have been giving a testimony to that priest who would then tell other priests, which would verify Christ's Messiahship. Because you see, they knew that, that the Messiah, when he came, would be able to, you know, make the, the lame walk again, the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lepers would be cleansed. So this would be a testimony to the priests that indeed Jesus Christ was the Messiah because no one had ever been able to cleanse a leper before. But the problem was, and I'm almost through, that the leper's excitement, and you can empathize with him, but his excitement over his miraculous healing got the better of him, and he disobeyed. Christ's command to say nothing to any man except the priest. Now, Mark, as I said, is the only one who tells us about the leper's disobedience. He says that he went out and he just blazed it abroad. I mean, he told everybody he, he met. He began to pu publish it much. You see, he was so full of joy and gratitude to the Lord for what he had done in cleansing him that he just couldn't keep quiet about it. What, ha what happens when you have something wonderful in your life? 
you want to shout it. You want to tell everybody you know if, if you've been healed of something or if something great happens and, you know, your child's going to get married. I mean, you want your friends and everybody to know. And if, he, if you were a leper, who would be the first ones you'd want to tell about this man who has healing power? Well, all the other lepers too, wouldn't you? I mean, I'm sure he would want to tell all the lepers that Jesus could cleanse them. But what we can fault him for is his disobedience, definitely, to Christ's direct command. He, we cannot commend this. The Lord had specifically told him not to tell anyone but the priest. And um, even though his motives, his intentions may have been good, you know, his emotions uh, got, got the better of him, and, and uh, yet his disobedience, for whatever reason, caused a hindrance to the Lord's ministry. And the lesson for us is that our emotions, our good intentions, you know, our uh, self-rationalization, whatever, whatever we do to say, well, this is one case where I can disobey God's commands because I really mean good here, and yet it's still wrong because his disobedience caused a hindrance to the Lord's work. There were uh, so many people now who were coming to the Lord when he'd enter into a town or a village that he just could not preach anymore. So it says he couldn't go into the synagogues anymore. He had to go out into the desert places. And that's where we get the idea that Jesus is always out in the open preaching to people. He wasn't initially. He was initially, his, his uh, plan was to go into the synagogues, but this leper kind of messed up things for him by his disobedience. All right, well, we end the study finding that the Lord... To, uh, to resist the temptation to just be to receive the, the um, acclaim of the people, and they would have probably been very close to making him their king. And to resist that temptation, because now he's so openly popular, we find that he again went to his father in prayer. And so we have the third recorded prayer in our Life of Christ study in Luke 5.16. And so we opened and closed our whole study with prayer, finding the Lord in prayer at the beginning and at the end of his um, great Galilean ministry. All right, this ends not only this lesson, but this entire year, and next year we'll begin with, I think it's the healing of the paralytic, as we go to um, lesson number 23. That's where we'll pick up, and then I think we only have five lessons in that book. Keep those books. Don't lose them. We're going to finish those five lessons, and then hot off the presses will be book number two, because that's my summer project, is to do book number two. Thank you so much for being faithful this year, and I look forward to hearing from you all next week. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you once again for allowing us week after week the wonderful privilege of gathering together in this, your house, for the purpose of reading and expositing your word so that we might know our Lord and Savior in ever-increasing richness and depth. Father, thank you that we know whom we have believed, and we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. We love you, Jesus, and I pray this summer we will truly be lights and salt for you in all that we do and say, for we pray in your blessed name. Amen.